This week, my new paper on the TICL has been published by Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. I have to thank the editors of the special issue, especially Colin Hales and Tam Hunt. Beyond the criticism of the reviewers, these guys engaged with me to improve the paper and challenge my ideas in a way that I've never experienced before in a publication. They seem to actually give a damn that my ideas get into the world and that they are as well presented as possible. As far as I can tell, there is nothing in this for them. I didn't even refer to Colin's previous work in this paper, and he did not encourage me to do so. I referred to Tam Hunt, but I was quite critical of his general resonance theory. They were just providing guidance and mentorship to a perfect stranger at an earlier point in his career. This buoys my confidence in the scientific community and inspires me to pay it forward when I come to such a position in my own life. The new paper is effectively the sequel to the one I did last year in Consciousness and Cognition. This one is called The Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, Reconciling Neuroscientific Theories with the Phenomenology of Consciousness. In it, I make the case that the right model for consciousness should be a single large system which contains many smaller subsystems, in accordance with one mind containing many contents. This is how the TICL is constructed, and I compare it to other contemporary neuroscientific theories. I just encountered a paper by Michael Herzog, Michael Esfeld, and Wolfram Gressner called Consciousness in the Small Network Argument. The authors present the perspective that models of brain-based consciousness could be reduced to just a few neurons, and there is nothing in principle which should prevent such a small network from being conscious. In brief, they say, quote, We have argued that for each model of consciousness there exists a minimal model, i.e., a small neural network that fulfills the respective criteria, but to which one would not like to assign consciousness." Unquote. The implication is either that such models provide insufficient explanations for consciousness, or that consciousness occurs even in small networks. Herzog et al. write, quote, Whereas the theoretical and empirical results of these studies are of great importance, we propose that current models cannot fully account for consciousness because of a problem we call the small network argument. For each of the above models, a very small neural network exists that fulfills the respective characteristics of the models but does not exhibit consciousness. For example, two neurons mutually interconnected make up a recurrent system. Hence, these two neurons must create consciousness if recurrence is sufficient for consciousness. Minimal models of winner-take-all computations require only three competing neurons, which are fully connected to three presynaptic input neurons, plus potentially a single neuron controlling vigilance. Hence, such a network of seven neurons is sufficient to develop resonance states allowing learning and working memory. Analogously, if neural oscillations or synchrony are the main characteristics of consciousness, then a group of three interconnected neurons firing in synchrony is conscious. Similarly, a thermostat, typically modeled as a single control loop between a temperature sensor and an on-off switch for a heater, is a classical example of a perception action device. It can be formulated as a two-neuron feed-forward network with a sensory neuron connecting onto an output neuron, controlling the heater switch. If one does not want to attribute consciousness to such small networks, other components are needed. For this reason, additional characteristics are often implicitly proposed to be necessary for consciousness. Typical examples are attention, cognition, the number of neurons, or the complexity of the network." Unquote. The claims made here could go even further. What about processes which occur within a single cell? There are feedback loops and complex interactions occurring among proteins and lipids inside the neuron. Recurrent processes and synchronous processes occur all over the place in nature. 
Those of us who oppose panpsychism are certainly not suggesting that it is like something to be molecular pathways like these. Next, the authors point out how cognitive mechanisms can be modeled in simple machines, and we are reluctant to think of them as conscious. Then, they move on to the idea of size and complexity. Herzog et al. write, quote, Instead of attention and cognition, it is often proposed that consciousness emerges if a brain exceeds a certain number of neurons. However, let us suppose a model with a linear arrangement of neurons in which each neuron is connected to its neighbor to the right and left only. Given its simple connectivity, there is no obvious reason to assume that such a network, say with 100 neurons, is more capable to create consciousness than its simplest version consisting of only three neurons. Hence, the sheer number of neurons alone is inadequate to overcome the small network argument. Therefore, other approaches state that a certain complexity of the connectivity of the network has to be met to yield consciousness. For example, Tononi and Edelman, 1998, proposed to measure complexity by defining a functional cluster which is loosely connected to the rest of the network and has a rich repertoire of internal states. Still, even in this case, we can construct a small network of, say, nine neurons that meets the proposed complexity criterion. Hence, the necessary ingredients of the theory of Tononi and Edelman can be implemented in a surprisingly small network. We do not doubt that attention, recurrent computations, and complexity are important aspects to understand consciousness. However, we propose that these aspects are often trivially necessary rather than sufficient. For example, often it is assumed that consciousness emerges not before several hundred milliseconds after stimulus onset. Hence, given the short time constants of membranes of neurons, recurrent connections are obviously necessary to store and process the stimulus before consciousness is reached. Complexity is for sure of primary importance for consciousness because networks with the same number of neurons can create trivial as well as complex behavior depending on their connectivity. Therefore, the important question is which kind of connectivity or which exact degree of complexity determined with which mathematical norm is sufficient for consciousness and why, unquote. This paper was published in 2007, so it doesn't mention integrated information theory or global neuronal workspace, much less the temporally integrated causality landscape, TICL, which I didn't get into the literature until last year. Nevertheless, these contemporary frameworks are still subjects to the small network argument. Indeed, I've addressed this problem before in the podcast without being aware of this paper. I've usually discussed it in terms of panpsychism versus emergence. Now I'm going to explain why I think the TICL holds up better than other theories against the small network argument. Let me start by sharing the description of the TICL as published in my new paper in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. I took out the parts where I refer to a figure, but otherwise what follows is taken directly. I wrote, quote, According to the TICL, a distinction can be made between consciousness as a unified whole and the individual contents which compose the unity. Thus, a distinction is made between the system and its subsystems, which are understood to be the full neural correlates of consciousness and the content-specific neural correlates of consciousness, respectively. The system is that component of the thalamocortical brain, which exhibits some non-zero level of temporally integrated causality, TIC, among all its neuronal elements. Integration, in the context of TICL, refers to causal influence in both directions. Thus, integrated elements are characterized by having causality upon one another over some time frame and therefore indirect causality upon their own future state. Among a group of integrated elements, the TIC is the amount of causal influence over the time that it takes to achieve it. 
The system is irreducible in the sense that it only includes those neuronal elements which are contributing causality and are subject to effects under the influence of the other neuronal elements over some period of time. The system alone is insufficient for consciousness. Evidence of this is provided by global synchrony, as might occur with certain types of epileptic seizures, which co-occur with loss of conscious experience. The TICL explains this by necessitating the existence of subsystems within the system for the consciousness of content. According to the TICL, a subsystem is a group of neuronal elements within the system which have a higher level of TIC than the system at large. This can occur by alteration of the numerator, the amount of causality, or the denominator, the time required, or both. In this way, the activity corresponding to the subsystem is nested within the time and space of the system. Accordingly, the content which is produced by a subsystem is nested within the phenomenal time and space produced across the system. The dynamics of subsystems provide meaningful content from the point of view of the system. Since the subsystems have higher TIC than the system, they are experienced in specific and meaningful ways. The subsystemic TIC is intrinsic to the systemic TIC. In fact, the TICL predicts that the subsystemic activity is experienced in the form of its geometrical relationship to the system in space and time. It is thus directly experienced as relational meaning. Color, shape, size, pitch, tone, good, bad, painful, strange, scary, sad, interesting, and so on. All neuronal activities in the thalamocortical system which do not contribute to sufficiently high TIC to participate in a subsystem are subconscious. Background activities. This means that a threshold for consciousness is built into the functional organization of the thalamocortical brain." Unquote. So how does this framework hold up to the small network argument? According to the TICL, the system is much, much larger than any of its subsystems. The human mind is a landscape of contents. Look around you. Feel your body. Listen to the world. How many thoughts and feelings are scrambled within one moment of time, some with clarity, others vague? The whole world that you know intimately is all composed of conscious contents unified from your perspective. That whole world is being composed and represented right now. Look at your finger. How much of your mind is the image of that finger? Very little indeed. As you focus upon the way your finger looks in front of your eyes, you heighten by means of attentional processes the salience of the image. It is like a higher peak upon the landscape of your mind. Now forget your finger and look at another object, a cup or a pen or the stealing, steering wheel of your car. Focusing on that new thing, your attention is driving up the TIC of another subsystem. Another peak is rising to the top and the finger peak has fallen below it. All of the peaks upon the landscape reflect the TIC of subsystems in your cerebral cortex. As you turn your attention to a new object, the old objects still remain in your world, but the relative peaks are dynamically rising and falling. Moreover, the peaks become interconnected in different ways by thoughts and perceptions. The whole landscape is in motion, with mountains rising and valleys falling and peaks merging together and crashing apart all the time. What I'm trying to illustrate is that the mind as a whole is vast in comparison to its individual contents. This is the mind of the TICL. Everything exists in the form of meanings, colors and pitches and emotional valences, and meaning is relational. The TICL imagines that these meanings are literally geometrical relations. Since the mind is so much bigger than the individual contents, the things we see and hear and feel can be understood in terms of one another. This enables concepts and reasoning and detailed perception. This is larger than that. 
This has a similar color to the one I can access in my memory. Here is a person I know. There is someone I've never seen before. Your world is thusly composed of perceptions and memories and concepts. The human mind is so large that we can even recognize that we know what we know. We can think about thinking. We can contemplate how we contemplate. We are, and we know that we know that we are. Okay, I hope you understand my point. The TICL cannot be built over a substrate of a few neurons. Suppose we have 10 neurons all linked up and integrated in some interesting way. According to the TICL, the whole experiences the activity of its parts. So the whole 10 neurons experiences the meaning of this or that neuron, or two, doing what they do. The geometries which can manifest on such a substrate are minuscule. Thus, the bigger the system, the more meaningful the contents. How many integrated elements are necessary to produce simple qualia? I don't know. For that reason, the spirit of the small network argument still applies even to the TICL as it does to any other theory of consciousness. Further, the human mind must be bootstrapped by evolution from lesser minds. It is like something to be such a lesser mind, but the variety of its content is much reduced. The larger the substrate of mind, the more complex the geometrical hierarchies can become. The brilliance of the animal brain is that it brings into a common integrated structure of causal relations data from the whole body, from the eyes, the ears, and the nose. Moreover, it integrates sophisticated cognitive structures with those data streams to allow the mind to do operations upon them, to think and remember and imagine. If we had separate brains for each limb of the body, for the eyes and so on, this integration into a single mind would be impossible. Consider the ease with which we see an object on the table in front of it. In front of us, we identify what it is and we reach out and grab it. The whole world presents itself in this unified way, one world of mind. I am the mind of a human animal. I exist in a world of mind. What happens when this world comes apart, becomes fragmented or disintegrated? Well, quite simply, I disappear. This occurs every day when I fall into dreamless sleep. And when the body awakes, my world reappears along with me. The small world argument suggests that the disintegrated brain might still contain conscious points of view. These points of view, it would seem, are not mine. Even if it is like something to be a local network in my, in my brain at the edge of my temporal lobe, say, and I'm not saying that it is, that being like something is not me. Perhaps one answer to the small network argument is that the mind we know is a kind of supermind, emergent as a property of the unification of a million minds. I can't rule this out, but neither am I convinced that it is so. Yet I can't help seeing that the human organism, even the brain itself, is more a colony than a tissue. In a colony of bees or ants, the genes are shared by the members, and yet the individual insects express their own differentiated types and behavioral profiles. Each insect communicates, and thus exhibits causal influence upon the others. Over some period of time, they must thus be functionally integrated as a mass. The same is true for the neurons of the brain, each fully endowed with the genetic library and yet expressing its own individual nature and behaving independently and in a web of causal interactions with its kin. Neurons of each type and locality are specialized for tasks that only indirectly contribute to the colony's success and reproductive future. Are we not necessarily hive minds ourselves to be emergent over the interactions of such an immense colony of specialized cells? Mm -hmm.